All right, y'all, we can uh, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can lift your hand up. It's good to have the source text in front of you. And uh, we also have it on display up here as well. It, it really was a great time Wednesday night, of course, getting back together with the middle schoolers and uh, for the uh, high school group as well. Neat to have the high schoolers here and just kind of begin owning that ministry even more as a church um, and to have a, a great worship set with the band and be rocking out and then to uh, just preach the gospel and get into the book of Acts, looking at Acts chapter 10 and and we had about five students um, raise their hand to receive the gospel of salvation and to be saved. Uh, and then there were, uh, then everybody stood just for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their lives that they could be bold and brave and go back to school and to sports and to jobs and to preach the gospel to their friends. So, um, gosh, I don't know, there might have been 20-something high school students here um, to be a part of that. So... Be praying for us Wednesday night and uh, with the middle schoolers as well. It was a sweet time with them going through the Gospel of Mark and looking at the rich young ruler and how the Lord put his finger on that spot of the rich young ruler's heart that he had uh, not been willing to sacrifice to uh, obtain salvation. And so um, be praying for the middle school group as well. So in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you will stand with me and I'll read verses 1 through 13 together. This uh, slide, I believe, um, may not cover all of it, so you'll want to look at your Bible with us today. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, According to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Lord, so often we come on these Sundays and we have a good Bible study. And Lord, you would say to the Pharisees in the Gospels, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have life, but these are they which speak of me. So Lord, we come to more than a great ancient text. We come to more than great parables and great pithy sayings and great proverbs and words of wisdom. As we come to Calvary Chapel today, we come knowing that the text that we have before us was breathed out by the Holy Spirit and is profitable to us today for training up, for correction in our lives, for uh, getting us ready to hold the sound doctrine and to be useful for all works of righteousness. And so, Lord, don't let us just come and, and kind of uh, get full in puffy heads and big heads and, and uh, with no outlet, Lord, but that we would have outlet. We would obey your word. We would serve others, love others, and love God as we just are changed by your word today. Even these great three metaphors that are before us today that you desire to, to change us by. So let them work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So imagine 
you are sitting down to write your last letter. Of course, who are we kidding? It's almost 2019. Some of you need to imagine that you're sitting down to write a letter. You know, it's like letters have gone by way of the dodo bird, I think, you know, and uh, friend of mine has a mission in life to restore notes handwritten. You know, there's something kind of special of a note handwritten with a stamp on it, you know, maybe a little perfume, perfume squirted on there, you know, or a dab of cologne. But, you know, uh, being the military history buff that I am, I often hear last letters written home by soldiers before they went over the parapet or went over the top and were wounded and killed for their king and country. And they're usually very incredibly sobering, loving, reflective letters, if you've ever read one. Uh, And here it's the same thing. As we get into 2 Timothy, this is Paul writing his last letter, his final letter to his disciple, to his child in the faith, to Timothy. And in it, he calls Timothy, in some of his final words, calls Timothy to get ready to suffer. Get ready to suffer for the gospel. And in that, he's already, by the end of chapter 1, told us that all Asia had abandoned him because of his sufferings, because of his chains. They were ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus. They were ashamed of Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. There was only one man in his household that Paul could think of at the moment, Onesiphorus. Uh, or, I get Onesiphorus. Yeah, Onesiphorus. Uh, I wanted to make sure I was saying that name correctly. Uh, and his whole household uh, zealously sought after Paul and refreshed him in so many countless ways. And that being said, Paul tells his, his child, Timothy, he says, hey, you know, how, how do you expect to be able to endure with people abandoning us left and right, uh, with, with uh, persecution so highly on the rise? You need to be strong in grace, Timothy. That's verse 1 of chapter 2. You need to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You need to uh, have power to be able to do this ministry that God has called you to. And what is that ministry, Timothy? It is that you would take the words that you've heard from me among many witnesses, and you would then go and you would train up faithful men. You would teach faithful men. You would commit these things to faithful men who would then commit them to others also and teach others also. We studied that last week. But verse 3, where we come today, has this connecting word, therefore, that tells us by training up faithful men and committing these things to faithful men who will train up others also, that is going to bring about hardship. The life of a mentor spiritually, the life of a disciple maker is a life that brings hardship that must be endured. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so this morning in the next few verses, we're going to look at three different metaphors or three different pictures of not only the Christian life, but we would say the Christian life that is a disciple maker. And really, when you get down to brass tacks, we're talking about the Christian life. Every Christian life is the life of a disciple maker. Every Christian life is the life of an on-fire Christian. Every truly Christian life should be, ought to be, moved towards the life of being a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first picture that we have, the first metaphor that we have, and man, I can remember, you know, about 10 years ago, teaching this passage at Calvary Chapel Corvallis and just having it seared into my heart, verses one or verses two and here verse three, uh, this first picture of a good soldier, this picture of a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You therefore must endure hardship or literally it's translated, you must share or suffer misfortune as a good soldier. Probably a few of us in this room uh, have read those stories of good soldiers, and I know many of you are veterans, and you've played your part as a good soldier. I've not, uh, as far as for our country, but I know some of you have, and uh, in all of us here, 
ought to be that for our spiritual country, for our king, and for our country. So, as the successor of Paul, who is making more successors of Christ in a realm that has totally abandoned the apostle, Timothy must be strong in the grace and active in making disciples, which means that Timothy must succumb to a regular life of suffering. It's the life of a Christian. It's the life of a discipler. It's the, it's the life of a good soldier. A good soldier is known for his focus and his willingness to suffer, his willingness to endure hardship, not to get mad at hardship, not to complain at hardship, not to expect no hardship, but to endure it. You know, for us, often in our nation, in our country, you know, we got Memorial Day or Labor Day or the 4th of July. And here in Prineville, we got the National Guard that kind of rolls through the parade in those awesome big old trucks, you know. And, and maybe occasionally, uh, you know, I was fishing the Deschutes last month and there's a railroad track that goes right by the Deschutes up by the Columbia River. And, and this train goes by and every car on the train had a, a tank on it or a Humvee on it or something like that, you know. And I'm just like... <laughs> you know, not paying attention, getting my line hung up, but just so impressed, but didn't see a soldier. I, I rarely see a soldier. Went and saw Troy Kosky come back from Afghanistan, saw him sent off to Afghanistan, and saw soldiers then, but it's just rare for us to see much of that here in our country. But for Paul, he had witnessed the life of a Roman soldier. They were everywhere. They were doing their duty everywhere. The, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the hard stuff, the tough stuff. He was aware. In fact, he had been chained to a Roman soldier. And so he was very aware of the life of a soldier and their suffering that they would endure. And you don't have to go that far in this day and age, whether it's going down to the library, checking out a book, listening to a podcast or whatnot, watching a PBS uh, or American Experience and watching some of those stories. You don't have to go very far to hear of the agonizing life of a soldier. You could read of the Marines on Guadalcanal or Peleliu. You could read about the 101st Airborne just going through that bristly cold winter in Bastogne, Belgium. You could read about the Australians or watch movies of the Australians at Gallipoli or hear about the Marines in Korea at the Chosen Reservoir. There's harrowing stories, there's terrifying stories horrific stories, brutal stories, from beginning to end, from training till honorable discharge or death. You read of marching and marching and marching. It makes our treks in La Paul just look like child's play, you know, blisters and chafing and the weight of the packs. When you read of the Marines on Peleliu, you hear of their going into this desert coral island with no water. And any water that was given to them was brought in these 50-gallon buckets that had been oil drums. And so it was contaminated with fuel. And so these guys were just fighting battles in the 100-something degree temperature with no water. And reading of the soldiers with hunger and, and meager food rations. And, you know, you watch stories of the, um, the World War I soldiers and the artillery that they would endure on the Somme and, and how they would have shell shock that would just, it would just completely rattle them. Recently, listening to a Christian uh, general from the Vietnam War talk about the discoveries since 2014 of what they're calling uh, not only shell shock, but going deeper to what's called moral trauma. And just how these men are going into battle and, and they're seeing things and doing things that are just contrary to, to what they've been raised and accustomed to or even brought up with and even in biblical things. And so morally, they're going through trauma and going through hardship. Of course, you hear of wounds and dismemberment. You hear of the heat and the freezing cold. You hear of the stench and the decaying corpse and Corpses and the sewage and the flies and the floods and the bodies being washed over them in their trenches in the floods. And you read of capture and the Bataan death march and torture and imprisonment for years on end. You read of them missing their family and being willing to live as if they were already dead. 
That's, that's tough stuff. That's stuff that I really don't know much about. But it's something that we're called to endure as Christians. And that, of course, is all just stuff that I've read even recently in some of the stories I've gone through of some of these military experiences. And then you transfer that and transpose that to what Christians are going through in North Korea right now. To what they're going through in Vietnam in places. To what they're going through in Pakistan and Nigeria. They're very aware of the suffering of a soldier for Jesus Christ. They know what it means to endure afflictions and probably laugh at us at our little fears of the pushback that we might get as we share the gospel within our spheres and environments and social media or at the restaurant or whatever it might be. R. Kent Hughes says the image of soldiering suggests awesome qualities. For example, proverbial obedience or deep loyalty. When Marshal Foch, a French general in World War I, commanded an officer, you must not retire, you must hold the line at all costs, then his officer said, that means we must die, to which Foch answered, precisely. The Christian soldier realizes we've got to be ready to die if we're going to be as Timothy and hold the line at all costs. And as you scan the New Testament, the Christian life is often likened to the life of a soldier, the life of a battle, whether it's 1 Corinthians 9, 7, who goes to war at his own expense? Or later on in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where it says, wage the good warfare. As we're told in 2 Corinthians 10 or Ephesians chapter 6, how we're to wage that good warfare with the weapons of our armory that are not carnal, but rather they're mighty in God for pulling down those strongholds in the spiritual realm. In Philippians, Paul calls one of his friends Epaphroditus a fellow worker, a brother, and a fellow soldier. And that's what we are. That's what we are as a church. As we call this body to dedication to this local church, our desire is to know who's in the trench with us. Who are these brothers and sisters that we're in the trench with that as we read the Bible and we even look at the climate of our own country, we realize that persecution can only get worse as we only get more open about the the truth of the gospel. And so who is it that I'm linked arm in arm with even in this local body? Are we good soldiers ready to endure suffering? Now look at verse 4. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So uh, this metaphor of the soldier goes on for another verse. It's one of the longer pictures out of the three, where this good soldier is found to be one who is engaged in warfare. That's what a good soldier does. They are waging the war as a soldier. And as they are waging that war, none of them entangles themselves or is involved in these activities and possessions of this life. Here, the good soldier of Jesus Christ is called good because he's a dedicated man. He's a dedicated man. How does he show his dedication? both to suffer and to concentrate. Those are two things we see about this good soldier, ready to endure suffering, ready to suffer, and ready to be focused, ready to concentrate. Perhaps Paul is referring to what was the Roman code of Theodosius as he writes this, where Theodosius wrote, we forbid men engaged in military service to engage in civilian occupations. So if you were a soldier, it wasn't the time to start another business, to start, you know, to to start the life of an entrepreneur. You know, it was the time to be focused and willing to die and willing to give your all and all of your hours and all of your time and all of your energies to the cause. Soldiers who were on Active service were not to expect a safe or an easy time. They were to take hardship. They were to take risks. 
They were, of course, to suffer. This was a matter of course. It was part and parcel to the soldier's life. On the spiritual sense, when Tertullian in, in church history addressed future church martyrs, those that knew they were going to die for Jesus, he wrote, no soldier comes to the war surrounded by luxuries, nor goes into action from a comfortable bedroom, but from the makeshift and narrow tent where every kind of hardness and severity and unpleasantness is to be found. So the Christian, just as the soldier, should not expect an easy time. If we're loyal to the gospel, we're sure to experience some opposition. And so we're ready to share in the sufferings, not entangling ourselves with the affairs of this life. And the verse goes on in verse 4, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. I like that secondary part of this verse. It's not just that they're good. It's not just that they're ready to suffer. It's not just that they don't want to, you know, lose focus and kind of get involved in extracurricular activities. But there's a purpose behind it. A pleasing of the captain. A pleasing of the chief master general. You know, the five star. I have a heart to please this. The JBP or J... Uh, uh, the, the Phillips translation of the, the text from the 1940s says that this soldier is to be holy at his commanding officer's disposal. Think about that. I mean, that's, that's tough even for me to consider. It's tough for me to consider. I often have dreams that for whatever reason I'm drafted at this point in my life to go into service and I've got to say goodbye to my wife as if it's the last time I'll see her. I've got to say goodbye to possessions. And I've got to, as I've learned in my reading, I've got to be living as if I'm already dead so that I can function as a true soldier should. Without fear, without mercy, without second guessing things, that's the life of a soldier. And I have these dreams that I'm, you know, kissing my wife Good night as she's on in her bed and then I go and I get on the bus that takes me over to the station and I and I go and it's the experience of the majority of humanity in this world. And we've got to transpose that to the same call for the Christian. Recently become a fan of a former Navy SEAL and leadership uh, trainer named Jocko Willink. He's got a great podcast I've enjoyed and uh, he was the Navy SEAL commander in Ramadi, Iraq, back in about 2006. And he tells about, in his story, as he was commanding, you know, like the American sniper, Chris Kyle, if you're familiar, in that SEAL team uh, squad. Um, when he was the commander, he didn't even put pictures of his family up in his bunk. Because he knew that as he did, he would be forlorn. And he wouldn't have this singularness and focus that he was supposed to lead these men and bring them home alive and accomplish their mission. And kind of that idea of leadership is, you know, others may, you cannot. Others may, you cannot. Why? Because of the great responsibility. He was recently telling the story of a man who was captured in the Philippines in World War II, and this guy was uh, put on the Bataan Death March, went through just horrors unexplainable, and this man even would tell that, you know, as he was in prison for, I think it was like five or six years, he couldn't even think about his family. It would just cause him too much heartache, and he wasn't able to deal with the present conflict. E.K. Simpson would write, The spectacle of military discipline furnished a grand lesson of wholeheartedness. Okay, the spectacle of military discipline furnished a grand lesson of wholeheartedness. So I want you, if you're taking notes today, which I know so many of you are, I want you to ask yourself, in my life, is there wholeheartedness for Christ? Is there a singular focus? As Donald Guthrie put it, are you a man of one mind? 
And feel free to put a woman of one mind if you want. Hughes says, single-mindedness, the ability to focus, to shut everything out when necessary, is the key to success in virtually every area of life. So, I mean, this spreads across the human predicament in every area. Single-mindedness, ability to focus, we're talking about discipline. The New Testament speaks of discipline. Paul speaks of discipline here, and not only in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, about disciplining his, disciplining his body and bringing it under subjection, lest having preached to others, he himself would be disqualified. And here in the picture of a, of a soldier, we're talking soldierly discipline. John Stott says, So in the Second World War, people frequently said to each other with a wry smile, there's a war on. You guys ever seen that or heard that? There's a war on, they'd say. It was a watchword, Stott says, to, uh, that was sufficient to justify any austerity, self-denial, or abstention from innocent activities because of the current emergency. And so just Paul says, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, because of the present distress, those who are married should be as though they are not. Those that have possessions should be as if they do not. It's not that you're not married. It's not that you don't have possessions. It's that those things are not the end all right now. There is a present crisis, and that is an unreached world for Christ and the persecuted state going up in the world all around us, even in our own nation. And so we can crack that wry smile to each other and say, there's a war on. Why should I take time out of my week to be a part of this new home group season coming up that is specifically intention to be disciples and to make disciples? Why should I commit to a Thursday evening or a Monday evening or a Friday evening? There's a war on. There's a war on. Have you missed it? You've been watching the wrong news channel. There's a war on for the spread of the gospel. Are you a good soldier? Are you ready to suffer? Even if stage one of your suffering is not staying home and watching TV all night long or missing your kid's baseball practice or, you know, letting the dogs wait to be fed till nine o'clock at night instead of 6 p.m. at night. There's a war on. We're rationing. There's a greater cause and it's a great cause. The glory of God among the nations. A good soldier doesn't entangle themselves with the affairs of this life. As Peter says in 2 Peter 2.20, if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Verse 21 says, for it would have been better for them to not even known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. That's the story of the soldier, the good soldier that goes to battle, that goes to the trenches of Gallipoli and finds that the first three hours of battle are more than he can bear and he turns around to retreat. It would have been never, it would have been better for him to have never enlisted and gone to the front than to have enlisted with all the pomp and circumstance, go to the front, find it's too much for me, I've got to go back and be shot as a coward. The same is for the Christian life. And Jesus says it himself when he says in Luke chapter 14, count the cost for following Jesus. Before a king goes to battle against another army, he's got to check his resources to know, should I really go to battle with this guy? I got to count my cost. Or would it be better to go to him with terms of peace? If I'm going to build a tower, do I have enough money to build the tower? Or is this tower going to go two-thirds of the way and then just be a bunch of sticks sticking up in the air and I'm going to look like an idiot? Have I counted the cost for being a Christian? Does it mean for me as a Christian a different life? Yes, it does. But don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. His grace is sufficient. Once we say, I recognize that, Lord, you are going to change me. You are going to make me a new man as a Christian. But you are going to do it. I don't have to white knuckle it. He's going to change me from the inside. And just as a tree naturally bears fruits 
You don't hear him straining and groaning and grr, grr, grr. you know, it's just, whoa, hey, did you guys notice the apple tree bore fruit today? Like, when did that happen? I must have even missed the blossoming season. We've got to count the cost, though. The danger is to cling too tightly to the things of this world. Jesus says in Luke 9, at the end of a sweet passage, it's in verse 62, that no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That kind of goes into our farmer metaphor in just a couple verses, but I think you get the picture. There's a war on, there's a field to be plowed, let's get after it. Let's move forward so that we might please our master. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 calls this one who enlisted us as a soldier the captain of our salvation. Look at that at the very end. He's the captain of our salvation. And you know, one thing I love about our Lord is he doesn't call us to suffer like, hey, you know, um, I'm living like the, the life of luxury, you know, up here in heaven and all that. But, you know, you guys, it's going to really stink, you know. No, it says that Jesus, the captain of our salvation, was actually made perfect through sufferings. And the language means that he was shown to be perfect through the things that he suffered. And so what I love about our God is he's a God who has taken on himself the human dilemma. He has suffered with us. And that makes us want to please him all the more because he's been where we're at. It's by the grace that is in Jesus, verse 1 tells us. And by the way, the whole of the epistle, even though it's very practical in nature for pastors, it starts out with a gospel view in chapter 1, verse 1, that there's a promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. There is the hope of the gospel as in verse 9 of chapter 1. He's saved us and called us with a holy calling by his grace that was there before the world even began. In the gospel, he's brought Uh, an end to death and he's brought life and immortality to light in the gospel everything we speak of is is not only motivated but it is informed by the good news of the gospel including in chapter 2 verse 1 that if we are going to be good soldiers then we must be strong in grace and some of you've been noticing as i post on facebook prayers for people in our church i'm praying that you know, in their day, they would find their strength in the grace of God. And I just find myself as I, if you ever notice typos, it's because I'm praying into my phone and it writes it out, you know, and then I try to do a little edit. But sometimes there's, there's bad typos, and so you got to help me edit those things. But I noticed as I was praying that I was praying for one person, I just prayed, when their well runs dry, let them tap into the reserves that are in you, Lord. And the Lord said, uh-uh, no. Don't wait till then. Your, your well is like perpetually dry. Just always, just let's just put the pipe into the Lord Jesus, all right? Let's just abide and let's just have that constant flow of the torrents of living water coming into our wells. There's always, you know, yes, he's, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. We're just always weak. We're just always at a needing capacity. And so, Lord, let your grace pour out on us so that we, though we enlist, scared to go to war we would find grace and help in time of need we would find strength to not only suffer but to say no to those distractions by the grace of jesus we're called to put on the helmet and to stay in the battle until the commander in the war says it's over and how easy it is for us to get distracted by things that just don't matter Are there good things in your life that are keeping you from doing the the main things? Are there things in your life that are distracting you and hindering you from being a part of God's salvation, getting known to the farthest parts of the world, being part of missions, being a part of community outreach? Is the world got you trapped as 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says it would? Has it brought a snare? Has it plunged you into perdition it will do that it will distract you from the main aim of the soldier 
Later on in our book, 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 10, Paul's going to say that Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas, called out by name as someone who turned back from the battle, put his hand to the plow and looked back. Someone who entangled themselves in the affairs of this life. And Jesus says it'll happen. He tells the parable of the sower and the seed that one of those seeds, it'll land on a thorny ground and a weedy ground. And everyone's like, well, what does that mean? And Jesus would say later, the, the seed that landed on the weedy, thorny ground is a picture of the word of God going in, into the heart of a person and then the possessions of this world and the cares of this world come and choke out that seed. What are the things that we have entangled ourselves in in the midst of the battle that are choking out our seed? The Holy Spirit, bring a machete to those things. Bring the weed and feed to those things. Just choke those things back out, Lord. Counter their move. Listening to Alistair Begg, he told the story of, uh, of course, he was from Scotland. His dad signed up for World War II. And on his first day, uh, he'd signed up. He got his uniform, was shown where his bunk was. And then at tea time, he started walking off the base. And the, you know, master at arms or whatever it was said, hey, where do you think you're going, Beg? You know? And he said, well, I'm going home to have tea with my family. And, you know, the guy's like, get back in there. He's like, tea time with the family's over. You know, there's a war on, right? We're talking about devotion to the cause. We're talking about devotion to the kingdom and the mission of God. Devotion to the Lord. What Sandra D. would say, hopelessly devoted to you, if you know what I'm talking about. You can tell if you just like something, if you like the idea of something, or if you're devoted to something. A lot of us know each other in this room, and I could probably put my finger on what you're devoted to in life. What would you say that it is? The authorized version of this text says no one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the fashions of this world. For some of you, that's actually fashion. You're like really into fashion, and that might be, that might be the thorn that would choke you out. But what it's speaking of is the things that have framed and that have formed you for so long, but now in Jesus, there's a different dimension that you prioritize those things under. Now, Jesus Christ is on the throne now he is at the head. He is the one that enlisted you as a soldier. And so all of those other things, insert new homeschool dad here. You'll be so proud of me working with my daughter and teaching her about nouns, the vocab word of the week, person, place, thing. And then I noticed they've added this since I was a kid or an idea. I'm like, what? I never knew that was a noun. See, we're all reading the same stuff here, right? So for you, is Jesus on the throne or is that person Oh, I am all for Jesus. Until he asked me, no, for this person. No on this person. I'm all for Jesus. Until he says, hey, no more to that place. No more of that thing. No more of that idea. All of those things now fall under a different authority with Jesus at the head. And he has his own rules as to where those ought to go. Stott says, so what is forbidden, the good soldier of Jesus, is not all secular activities, but rather entanglements, which, though they may be perfectly innocent in themselves, may hinder him from fighting Christ's battles. We must be dedicated to the battle, committing ourselves to a life of discipline and suffering and avoiding whatever may entangle us and so distract us from it. It's not a bad thing to ask a good friend who loves Jesus, be honest with me, brother, what have I entangled myself in? What do you see pulling me away from the mission of God? Hopefully that brother would love you and be a faithful friend that might wound but bring life. The second picture that we come across, this second metaphor, and also, if anyone competes in athletics, 
have to chuckle because as I was studying this last week, I took a little study break and I watched a guy do impressions of Nacho Libre. <laughs> Sacho, do you have any sweats? You know, and, uh, and so I go into, and then I, okay, okay, that was enough of a waste of time. Come back, Lord, you know, and, uh, and then I read Paul do his own Nacho Libre impression. He's like, and also, if anyone competes in athletics, you know, no, so, some of us are fans. Some not so much, but, and also, if anyone competes in athletics, so we have the soldier who engages, that was the 10 seconds of your life, you'll never get back, maybe 20. I was taught in school of ministry, give the people pit stops so their brain will refresh, but you might have just lost some brain power there. The good soldier competes, uh, no, rather uh, engages, and here the athlete competes. He's competitive. Two times in this verse, the word compete is used. And of course, you don't have to read the New Testament too long before you see that the Christian life is not only likened often to a soldier's life, but an athlete's life. In 1 Corinthians 9, there's the strenuous life of self-discipline and training. In Hebrews 12, the runner must lay aside every hindrance and weight that's slowing him down. And here we have that the athlete that's competing must get ready for it. Prepare your heart to submit to the word of God. Are you ready? Keep the rules. Theirs is rules. <laughs> There's rules. I like the King James Version. It says, and if a man also strive for masteries, yet he's not crowned except he strive lawfully. Each athlete for the Olympics back in the Grecian day had to state an oath that they had fulfilled a necessary 10 months training before he was permitted to enter a contest. Any athlete who had not done this necessary discipline would have no chance at winning and in fact would lower the standard of the games. And so this second metaphor of a competing athlete who competes lawfully and ruefully it stresses that there must be self-discipline according to the rules. And of course, 1 Corinthians 9 comes to your mind as it does mine. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it under subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the Christian life is one of discipline. Discipline. On so many areas where your flesh doesn't want to obey, then, of course, by the Spirit, transformed by the Spirit and by the power of the Spirit, new creations in Christ, not apart from those things, you discipline yourself and you make your body obey. I can't go without food. Your body says, make your body go without food. Show your body who's boss. Give yourself the black eye is what the literal translation of that verse is. You have to sleep at certain times. Tell your body, haha, you get to be awake just so you know who's boss. It's not you. You want to go there, you want to smoke that, you want to drink that, you think you have to. We are going to institute some disciplines because of the gospel, by the Spirit of God, this is going to happen. And you're going to learn to like it. All right? As my new podcast pal Jocko says, discipline equals freedom. Right? Remember earlier we said any of our life circumstances that we're in, wholeheartedness and singleness of mind is at the center of it. Discipline is at the center of it. And so Paul would say at the end of his final letter in chapter 4 verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You don't fight a good fight. And run a good race without discipline. He ran according to the rules. Ben Johnson. You'll have to Google these guys. Lance Armstrong. 
Tom Brady, all found to not be competing according to the rules, whether it was performance-enhancing drugs or deflating footballs or things like that. And it would cost many games. It would cost many titles. It would cost millions of dollars. But be careful before you wag the finger. Because as we transpose this to the spiritual realm, the Bible has a lot to say to those who, when the gun is fired, you take off at a stellar pace only to completely walk off the track before a tenth of the race is over. Scripture speaks a lot to that. And as we talk of these athletics that have rules with them, many Christians want God's blessing in their life, but they don't want to play according to his rules. John Stott said, no rules, no wreath was the order of the day. Now, already we bristle, don't we? Because we don't like the word rules. Suggestions. Let's go with suggestions, all right? Those great 10 suggestions in Exodus chapter 20. We think of those 10 commandments as just a list of 10 great suggestions. Now, are we saved by the law? No, we're not. We are saved by grace. There's nothing we could do in our flesh to earn our salvation. We would fall short of the glory of God. The law is not there as a mechanism for salvation, but the law is there to guide and conduct the conduct of the Christian. Let's look at Moses, for example, as the picture of that. There they are, trapped in Egypt, in slavery, under the yoke, in bondage. Those are all biblical languages. And then God comes by grace. He intervenes, okay? He passes over them because of the sacrifice and the blood of the lamb. He frees Israel from their bondage in Egypt. And after they are free by the blood of the lamb, right? After they've passed through the waters of baptism, as DJ shared with us, then they were given the rules. It was after grace, it was after salvation, that because of God's love and he knows what's best for humankind to function properly, he gives the law, he gives the rules. You might say, oh, I don't need rules, I just operate based on how I feel at any given moment or what I feel love is. And anyone who's been in ministry any amount of time says it doesn't work that way, both biblically and by experience. The traffic lights aren't there to let you drive however you feel. Amen, Jake? The white, I just had to be like, and I totally believe that. So we're on the same page, okay? Okay. Got a deputy in the room, so sit up straight. Okay. The traffic lights aren't there to let you drive however you feel. It's soccer season in Crook County, and the white lines on the soccer field are not arbitrary. They are there in order to ensure that the game is played properly. These rules are given to us to know that society is ordered correctly, that marital life is enjoyed fully, that honesty is engaged in routinely, and that covetous, no matter how materialistic our society may be, that it's not for the Christian. So Christ redeems us, he gives us the word of God so that we might obey him. Gives us the law to frame our way of life. It condemns us because we can't keep it. And we continually find ourselves at the mercy seat for mercy and grace as Jesus is our only solution. Like what one preacher said, the reason some of you are fiddling around with things you shouldn't be fiddling around with is because you don't get this. And the reason you don't get this is because you don't want to get this. Those who believe, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, obey. Those who believe, obey. Dale Rolf Davis wrote, I know some Christians have allergic reactions when they're told they are, to sub they are subject to God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. This, they fear, is legalism and an effort at salvation by works. But that fear misunderstands the function of the Ten Commandments. 
The law comes in the context of grace. Yahweh lays down the pattern in Exodus. He delivers his people. Then he demands. He works his redemption before he sets down his requirements. He first sets Israel free and then tells them how that freedom is to be enjoyed and maintained. Glad obedience to God's moral law is simply our logical act of worship, as Romans 12.1 says. Without the law, we give evidence that we've never been justified. And so Timothy it's going to be very important for you and for the congregation there in Ephesus to make sure that you share in your part of suffering for the gospel. Well, Paul, what's that going to be like? It'll be a bit like a soldier who's just stepped under the front lines of battlefield. And he's prepared to please his commanding officer. He's devoted. It's going to be like an athlete who knows it's impossible to wear the crown of victory unless he competes according to the rules. And what else is it going to be like, Paul? Well, it's going to be like the hardworking farmer in verse 6, who must be first to partake of the crops. And this will be a quick one as we're wrapping up. Again, the King James Version, you got to love it. The husbandman that laboreth must be first to partake of the fruits. <laughs> the hardworking farmer. If the athlete must play fair, the farmer must work hard. He toils at his job, the verb indicates. Hard work is indispensable to good farming. David Platt said the difference with this illustration is that farming, unlike like athletics and sometimes the military, is it's not glorious and exciting. The farmer's not applauded by fans and civilians. He does not call a press conference when he bails his hay, although something to start considering. This is a good analogy for ministry, Platt says. Pastoral work is not glamorous. It involves sowing, planting, plowing, and monitoring. Farming is also like pastoral work in that it is endless. The farmer does not clock in and clock out. He gets up early, he works the field, he cares for the animals, and I like that Platt was excited to put this in there. And he shoots the wolves. He is devoted to his work. So again, discipline and devotion in this metaphor. Bishop Mool writes of the strenuous and prosaic, to uh, prosaic toil of the farmer. Unlike the soldier and the athlete, the farmer's life is totally devoid of excitement, remote of all glamour, of peril, and of applause. Yet the first share of the crops goes to the hardworking farmer. He deserves it. And this could mean two things. First of all, biblically, a harvest of holiness. The ministers and those that are making disciples ought to be the first to partake of the harvest of holiness. Reaping what you would sow in relationship with Christ and abiding in him. Not only a harvest of holiness, but a harvest of souls. Jesus likens uh, evangelism and people getting saved through evangelism as a agricultural harvest. In Matthew chapter 9, 37 and 38, he says, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There's a reaping of a harvest that takes place, and we get to enjoy the fruit of it. Man, so much of what we do, we desire to be evangelical in nature. As it's been said, you either evangelize or you fossilize. Well, you know, man, the, the reason that we are out there on the AYSO soccer field is so that we can be a light out there on the soccer field. Yes, great times with our kids. Yes, oh, some disciplines and learning some athleticism. Just, man, really beginning to own that soccer ball, you know. But as we're there, even in my yelling at my team, I get a little like, I told you to center the ball, you know. I'm like, oh, Lord, I want to represent you well here. Please, Lord, I know that center. I'm not mad. It's just I'm loud. And, you know, I'm like apologizing to my team. I'm not mad. Just center the ball, you know. Uh, could we, you know. And uh, But the, just in all of it, I'm like, I want to be an aroma of Christ here on this field. We even got to have uh, 
an extracurricular soccer party at my house. We had a World Cup party at my house. I'm just looking for any way to like minister to these people. And, and uh, you know, so we had this World Cup soccer party at my house and it was on YouTube. Turns out it was just a video game of the soccer. So we watched something else, but, um, <laughs> but invited my whole team and we have burgers and we talk and, you know, I just want to like have something different than what they have. I know that there's life in Christ and and that there's, there's a difference in me than is in anything else that is counter to the gospel of grace. And just so desiring to just share the gospel with parents and with students. And, and probably three different times at this soccer party this week, I got to talk about Jesus. I got to talk about the Lord. I got to talk about our, you know, our life as Christians. And uh, I got to talk about the gospel of grace. Just always looking, just desiring a harvest. And I encourage you, that's something we pray regularly, as Jesus said, that the workers would go out this week into the harvest field, and they would reap those harvests of souls. I mentioned George Whitfield last week, but he wrote on his diary, he was the, one of the great awakening preachers in the early, or in the, yeah, mid-1700s, I suppose it was. He wrote on his diary on Christmas Day, oh, how it will rejoice me to hear that some soul of this day was born again, then it would be Christmas Day indeed. What if just all of our like, oh, it's Easter, you know, oh, it's Christmas Day, oh, oh, if one person would get saved, then it would really be Easter, and then it would really be Christmas, amen. Let's have the worship team come up, and I think verse 7, verse 7 could go with verse 8, or it could go with verse 6, and we've been through some of these times in the pastoral epistles, where Paul would say, consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So he's going to move forward. He's going to talk about some really awesome stuff, and maybe that's what we consider, or maybe it's the earlier stuff, or maybe it's all of it, probably all of it, right? And the Phillips translation says, consider these three illustrations of mine, and the Lord will help you to understand all that I mean. As we close, just you can put your Bibles aside. Wouldn't be a Sunday morning without a quote from the C.T. Studd biography I'm going through. And uh, at this part that I'm in in this book, um, C.T. Studd, he's getting older. It's just after World War I. Uh, he's not only had a successful life as a professional cricket player, I mean, he was so world famous, he was like a Ken Griffey Jr., but of cricket, you know, and he gave up his family's fortune to go to China and to just like dress with like the Fu Manchu and the, the robe and all of that stuff, and then after that time of ministry where it was just fruitful and abundant harvest, he went to the Congo and uh, preached the gospel to headhunters and to cannibals and just crazy exciting stories. But then he would even go through times with the mission group that he was in where the missionaries he was with were living lives of carnality. They were lukewarm. There was bickering and fighting amongst them. And it just became more than he could even bear. And, you know, he's just he's kind of like a modern-day Apostle Paul. Modern-day, you know, 1913-style modern-day. But then he writes in, in the biography here, and bear with me, the break of a long season of lukewarmness, strife, and depression came one night in 1925. That night, a new mission was born, or rather, the original mission was reborn. And from that night, the issue of the conflict has never been in doubt, for God had begun to raise a new generation of unconquerables. Baptized with the same spirit as possessed these men and women of old, one of whom said, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Another said, if I perish, I perish. And others would say, our God is able to deliver us, but if not, we will not serve your gods. Buana came to prayers that night in Imam, forgive me, Ibambi, greatly burdened about the condition of things and feeling that somehow or another there must come an explosion of spiritual dynamite which would clean out the hindrances and leave room for the spirit to work again. There were some eight missionaries gathered with him. They were reading together his favorite chapter on the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. But shall we, can it be possible that such as we shall march up the golden streets with such as these? 
It shall be for such as are found worthy. Then there's a chance for us yet. Glory, hallelujah, hearts begin to burn. The glory of the deeds of these heroes of old seem to scorch hearts and souls. What noble and utter sacrifices they made. How God honored and blessed them and made them a blessing to others. Then in their lifetime, yes, and now here tonight, what was the spirit which caused these mortals so to triumph and to die? The Holy Spirit of God, one whose chief characteristic is a pluck, a bravery, a lust for sacrifice for God, and a joy in which crucifies all human weakness and the natural desires of the flesh. This is our need tonight. I will God give to us as he gave to them. Yes. What are the conditions? They are ever the same. Quote, sell out. God's price is one. There is no discount. He gives all to such as give all. 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 Death to all the world. To all the flesh. To the devil and perhaps the worst enemy of all, yourself. But how illustrate so great a matter? The talk turned to the Great War. This is World War I. And the heroism of the British Tommy who went over the top at the word of command and did it knowing all the odds were against his coming back alive. But how describe this spirit? The question was asked of some who were present and had been soldiers. And one replied, well, the way the sergeant major would describe it is that Tommy doesn't care a D what happens to him as long as he does his duty by his king, his country, his regiment, and himself. Those words were the spark just needed to set the train alight. Buana arose, raised his arms, and said, That is what we need, and that is what I want. O oh Lord, henceforth, I won't care what happens to me. Life or death, I or hell, so long as my Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. One after another, all who were present rose and made the same vow. I don't care what happens to me. Joy or sorrow, health or pain, life or death, so long as Jesus is glorified. Let's stand together.